You're listening to a sermon from our pastor, Brian Payne. We would love to have you worship God with us this Sunday at 1045 in the morning and at six o'clock in the evening as we make, nurture, and equip disciples of Jesus Christ in Auburn and throughout the world. Well, good evening. If you would turn your Bible to Genesis 19 as we continue to turn our eyes uh, to Jesus. Thank you, Adam, praise team, and Regen for leading us tonight in worship. I'm grateful Adam had the opportunity to go to the, the conference, the same conference in Nashville. He came back creative. Um, and I'm going to send that song to Matt Papa. Just a quick announcement. Uh, we have Missions Festival coming up in a couple of weeks. And that's one of the most strategic and important weeks on our calendar. Be praying for that. And not only that, uh, there's, there's places to sign up for meals that would help the planning. So start signing up for the meals and, uh, and also be praying for that conference because it's our festival because it's always uh, a very strategic uh, thing that Lakeview has done. And many people have got a sense of their call at these, at these festivals, their call to the nations. And so would you commit to that? Well, let me pray for us, and we will get into our passage. Lord, thank you for your mercy and grace that we know supremely uh, in the Son of God and through the Son of God and by the Spirit of God. And Lord, tonight, even as we consider this dark passage, we're reminded in the darkness of the sweetness of the promise, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So our, my text tonight got me thinking about what may have been my favorite movie genre when I was growing up, and that was uh, this, this genre called the disaster film. I think the first one that came out was in 1970. I didn't see it at the theater, but I saw it later, uh, the, the, the movie Airport, and then it spawned other uh, movies that came from that, I think three sequels. Um, but a disaster film um, has an impending, uh, very evident disaster, such as a damaged airline or uh, maybe a fire or, or a shipwreck. Uh, and, and it's no mystery what the plot is. You, you know, even in the opening scene, when things look very uh, peaceful, Maybe the, the flight is going well. There's no turbulence. Everybody's in a really good mood. Uh, but you know that something is about to go down because this is no ordinary trip. A tragedy is inevitable. Well, similarly, we, we have known that about Sodom and Gomorrah. As early as Genesis chapter 13, where it says in verse 10 that this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. And so from this moment on, the only question has been when and how. And so here in Genesis 19, we finally reach that point that you might see in that disaster film where all um, hell had breaks loose essentially on, on the, the, the people. In this particular case, it's actually a judgment from God. And so 
last time we saw in our passage that Abraham was interceding for these people. And there's this persistence in, in intercession. And he asked, for the sake of 10, or he says, for 10, would you, would you destroy this? And he says, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way. And when he had finished speaking to Abraham, Abraham returned to his place. So we're left wondering at this point, are, are there 10? And now Moses is going to answer that question. That brings us to chapter 19, uh, verse 1. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening. And I, and I don't think Lot knows that these are angels because I'm not certain Abraham knew that these were angels. They looked like two men who were with the Lord. Uh, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth. Now, I want you to note, Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. Now, in the ancient Near East, uh, this was the focal point of community life. This is where decisions were made. And for you to be sitting in the gate would have meant that uh, you're pretty comfortable uh, in this particular city, and, and you're well-received and respected in, in this particular city. It is evident that Lot feels at home in, in Sodom. So in addition to having this place of standing, uh, we're going to see he has married. And the text doesn't explicitly tell us, but it's very likely that his wife came from Sodom. And not only that, he now has daughters and as we're going to see in verse 14, we won't get to verse 14 tonight. We will next week. His daughters are betrothed to be married. They, they have been, uh, they're engaged, if you will. They're still living at home, but they're engaged, betrothed to two men from Sodom. Okay? And then we're also going to see in this passage that, that Lot calls the Sodomites his brothers. And so it appears that it was through compromise that Lot um, uh, has been able to rise in the community. You can't live comfortably in the place of such wickedness as Sodom without compromise. And that's an important point for us to recognize as we see our own culture and own country uh, become more and more like the people of this day. And yet, even while he seems to have compromised, he is still a man that Peter, in 2 Peter 2, describes three times as righteous. What does that tell us? That means that Lot is a man of faith. And even men and women of faith can compromise. And so Lot here uh, has never totally identified with the world in which he lived. Uh, he was a man, uh, as we're going to see, who has the grace of hospitality. He's very hospitable. And he had two virgin daughters, which in Sodom and Gomorrah, that would have been a rare, rare occurrence to have two virgin daughters at their age. 
And we're going to see next time he's the object of God's deliverance. And so Lot has not completely given himself over to the culture. And yet at the same time, he was unwilling to leave it behind. Derek Kidner describes him this way. He was the righteous man without a pilgrim spirit. A righteous man without a pilgrim spirit. And the question is, how many of us are like that? We are believers. We are righteous because of Jesus, but we also want to have a part in the world. So when we read about Lot, it may be that we're looking at the mirror, but that doesn't work. It never works. Moses wants us to see that. Look, for example, at Lot's attempt to rescue these two men that we know as angels. So it says, when Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, my lords, please turn aside to your servant's house. Now, if you'll remember in Genesis 18, verse 1, when they came, the when the, uh, the Lord and the angels came to Abraham, he's living in a tent. And twice we're going to read that Lot has a house in, in Sodom. And so he says, uh, turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go your way. And they said, no, we will spend the night in the town square. And so from this house that he has built for himself in Sodom, uh, he seeks to show hospitality to these two men that we know are uh, angels. But the reason these angels will not stay there, they're going to go into Sodom. Moses is making a point to highlight that God is very aware of what's going on in Sodom. And so when the judgment falls, no one can say that was over the top. No one can say that his judgment was arbitrary. These angels seeing it is just a reflection that God is very aware of, 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 of what's going on in a particular culture. That's horrifying. All you have to do is turn on the news today to see how horrifying that is. And so that's the point being made. Now notice in verse 3, but he pressed them strongly so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made a feast, made them a feast and baked unleavened bread and they ate. So he knew that Sodom's culture and streets were not a safe place to spend the night. And yet even um, his best efforts were not enough to protect them. Notice in verse 4, but before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom. Now I want you to notice, let me give you a term, it's called a merism. A merism is, is a term that means totality. So when scripture says, as far as the east is from the west, uh, he, he, he has removed our our sins from us. That's a merism. Speaking of totality. Well, here it says, uh, the men of Sodom, both young and old. It's not just a particular group in Sodom. It's everyone in Sodom. It, it, every generation. 
This is this sin has taken hold and it's infected every generation. This is a a herd mentality, and that's what's scary about um, the kind of sin we see in Genesis 19. If you have a people not renewing their minds in the Word of God, that's what happens. You see, young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house and they called to Lot where are the men who came to you tonight bring them out to us that we may know them now we were told in in chapter 13 verse 13 that the men of Sodom were wicked and they were great sinners against the Lord now they are living up to their reputation. And to be explicit, and if we can't be explicit on these things, the culture will be explicit for us. They have come to engage in homosexual rape. Verse 6, Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers. There he is calling them his brothers. They're not his brothers. Do not act so wickedly. So he has found himself because of his compromise in an impossible situation. And the only way he saw to fulfill his sacred obligation to protect these visitors in his home was to compromise and betray an even more sacred obligation, and that is to protect his daughters. That's what compromise will do. 100% of the time, you will eventually find yourself in an impossible situation. Sin and compromise always complicates your life. Because of the compromises of his sin, he was caught here between a rock and a hard place. He had to protect his visitors, and yet at the same time, we're going to see uh, he is going to bring his daughters to a place of horrible vulnerability. Verse 8, Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. So they're virgin daughters, rare thing in Sodom. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. Now, this is, there's not even language. There's not words in the English language to rightly describe this warped kind of thinking, okay? Uh, but it's likely that Lot, and I'm not justifying him, there's nothing to justify here, but I'm explaining what's going on. It's likely that he's trying to trap these uh, perpetrators into a legal dilemma. As we're going to see in verse 14, his two daughters were betrothed to be married. Uh, they were still living at home, but the engagement was seen as significant as marriage itself in the ancient Near East. Betrothal was regarded as marriage. 
And, and it very well may, may be that uh, Lot's goal here was to cause the men to recognize the, these two girls are betrothed to be married and, and that they would back off, recognizing that betrothal was regarded as highly as marriage or uh, it would put them in a legal conundrum uh, that would bring trouble on them. Of course, that does not make his actions excusable in the least. Uh, th these are wicked actions. But I want you to notice one thing that is notably absent is prayer. And Lot should have in this situation gone to the Lord. In fact, he had two angels in his home. It's very likely that if he had just prayed, instead of trying to fix a broken situation by acting in a sinful manner, if he had just cried out to the Lord, it's very likely the Lord would have employed those two angels uh, in, in the answer to his prayer. But Lot is prayerless. And that's what compromise does as well. It, it, it really does inhibit your communion with God so that it's not even a natural thing, a natural instinct for you to pray in those kind of situations. So he is prayerless and the Lord would have likely have responded. That brings us to verses 9 to 11. We'll close out here and then I want to uh, close with some final points. Uh, this is, I'm just taking a shorter part of this passage tonight because I want to make some points about some things that we see in this passage tonight. Verse 9. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn and he has become the judge. So it's interesting. Lot had compromised to receive commendation from the sodomites. And, and now when the rubber meets the road, uh, it's clear that they don't even like him in the, pro, uh, in the first place. This fellow came to sojourn and he's become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. They never loved him. I tell my children all the time, and we need to be reminded of this, non-Christians, non-believers can't love you. They can't. They don't have the capacity to love you in a cruciform way. Uh, they, they will love you in a, in a way that benefits them. But when that benefit is lost, they will withdraw um, that expression of perverted love. And so Lot had been esteemed enough to be in the gates of the city. But now when they see this isn't benefiting them, um, their real regard or lack of regard for Lot is seen. We will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them. So they're actually saving him and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. If Lot had just prayed, the answer to the prayer, the answer to his prayer was right there dwelling in the house with him. And we see it right here. Well, we're going to come back to this next week. I don't want to leave you hanging. But uh, in the interest of time, I feel like there's some things from this passage, given our climate, that we need to consider tonight. Um, first of all, um, we don't need to miss the point 
that Genesis 18 has Abraham dwelling in a tent. He has a pilgrim's perspective. He's a nomad. While in Genesis 19, we have a man who has a house in Sodom. He is sitting in the gate of Sodom. So Abraham had a pilgrim spirit. Lot, who was a believer, was too at home in the world. But remember how it all started. It started way back in chapter 13 when it tells us in verse 10 that Lot started looking at Sodom. Okay? It started with looking. It started with regarding. Okay? He liked what he saw. We need to be very careful with our eyes. We need to make a covenant with our eyes, as Job says. It started with looking. And then uh, we saw in chapter um, 13, verse 12, that he, after he liked what he saw, he moved his tent as far as Sodom. And so he's on the outskirts of Sodom. We saw that. And then by the time we get to chapter 14, 12, it says that Lot was dwelling in Sodom. All right? It began with the look. It began with the eyes. And now... We get to chapter 19. He's not just dwelling in Sodom. He's sitting in the gates of Sodom. And not only that, he has gotten married in Sodom. He has born children in Sodom. His daughters have married Sodomites. And Lot was a believer. And so this is intended to communicate. This is where this can take you. Being ruled by your eyes, being ruled by your, your sinful passions, instead of renewing your mind in the Word of God. We are not immune to this. Lot is a believer, but he has too much Sodom in him to enjoy the pilgrimage, and he has too much pilgrim in him to enjoy Sodom. And I think that is a uh, a dilemma that many believers face. Worldliness is like leaven. And uh, it has leavened uh, Lot and his family quite significantly. But remember as well, the discipline of God is like le uh, leaven as well. As we saw this morning, there's nothing. If we're branches that bear fruit, that is, if we're believers, there's no aspect of the branch that's not subject to the pruning knife of the vine dresser. And we're going to see that with Lot. A significant pruning is about to take place. But that brings me to uh, the elephant in the room. And that's the issue of what we see in Genesis 19 of homosexuality. Now, I grew up hearing pastors make snide and mean-spirited comments about homosexuality and it would draw a laugh and it was a way to to throw meat to the dogs if you will all right well that is not the way to handle this sin on the other hand some pastors don't handle it at all well, one of the benefits of preaching through books is that it forces you to address issues that may sound like a bully pulpit. But if you're preaching through the book, 
No one can charge you with a bully pulpit. You're just allowing the text to set the agenda. Traditionally, the sin that we see, the primary sin that's under judgment in Genesis 19, we saw from another text last week that there's a whole lot more going on than homosexuality. But homosexuality is a central sin that is subject to judgment in Genesis chapter 19. With that said, in recent times, in the last 50, 60 years, uh, Genesis 19 has been reinterpreted so that homosexuality is no longer seen to be what's in view. Uh, Donald Fortson and Roland Grams points out, debunking the Sodom story has become a fundamental part of the gay Christian argument regarding Scripture and Christian history. They know they had to deal with this because this passage is so blatant about what the reason for God's judgment. And, and this trend largely began with a book published in 1955 by Sherwin Bailey. Here's the name of the book. Uh, it's hard to overestimate the significance and impact of this book. Homosexuality and the Western Tradition. This was the first really important attempt to reinterpret what's going on in Genesis 19. And here's what Sherman, Sherwin Bailey uh, argues. That what's under judgment here is not that the, the men are attempting to have relations uh, with the two visitors in Lot's home. Actually, uh, Lot had failed to introduce the two men uh, to the men of the city, to the people of the city, a lack of hospitality. That's the problem in Genesis 19, a lack of hospitality. These people just wanted to get to know uh, the two visitors that we know as angels. Well, how do you respond to that? Because that is a, a popular view of Genesis 19. Well, first of all, we see the word know here, uh, bring them to us that we may know them. That word know is most generally used in scripture for sexual relations. In fact, in this very book, Genesis, here's what Genesis 4.1 says, Adam knew Eve. Same word that we find in Genesis 19. Clearly, that's referring to relations between a husband and wife. Then in verse 17, Cain knew his wife. Certainly, that's not referring to hospitality. A second response to this very significant book is that the context demands a sexual connotation. After all, Lot is seeking to appease the mob by offering his virgin daughters. That demands a sexual connotation. But let me give you even a third response that to me is the clincher if the first two aren't. Jude gives us an inspired interpretation of this passage. And here's what Jude says in Jude 7. Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, 
serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So Jude clearly makes it uh, evident that sexual immorality, which has many expressions we know, in this particular case it was rape, homosexuality, um, untold other ways to express sexual morality. That's what was under judgment among other sins. There's another way Genesis 19 is interpreted as well, and that's this. And I think this has gained traction uh, more so than the previous argument. And that is, what's being condemned here is not homosexual rape, uh, homosexuality, but homosexual rape. In other words, it wasn't consensual. The sin that it was is that it was non-consensual. They were looking for non-consensual relations. So it's not homosexuality that's the problem. It's rape that's the problem. So how do you respond to that? Well, first of all, we know from the law, Deuteronomy 22, that, that rape is an abomination to God, okay? R rape is a sin, and we do see that in Genesis 19. And so it, it, it is very clear that rape is an abomination to God. But so is homosexuality. In the same corpus of Scripture, uh, we see in, for instance, Leviticus 18, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. So rape is an abomination. Homosexuality is an abomination. And I would submit to you from the law, every sexual sin is seen that way before God, okay? As I've said, I have defined sexual immorality is all sexual expression outside the covenant of marriage. All sexual expression. Of course, the homosexual advocates will sometimes respond by arguing that the law contains many prohibitions that are no longer valid, like food laws. And we have to concede the New Testament certainly uh, makes clear that the, the food laws were temporary restrictions. Acts chapter 10, verses 9 to 16. But with that said, homosexuality and all sexual sin is as emphasized in the New Testament as sinful in the eyes of God as it as they are in the law of God, that is Genesis to Deuteronomy. For example, and, and I'm going to close with just a couple of texts here. In Romans chapter 1, Paul is writing about individuals, but also cultures that are being given over. Scary language, Romans 1, 18 to verse 32. And three times in Romans 1, he says that these particular unrepentant people exchange something. And three times, because of what they exchange, God gives them over. All right? So Romans 1, 22, listen to this. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And exchanged, so this is the first exchange. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men 
and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, here's God's response, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Paul is saying that one of the judgments on exchanging the truth about God for a lie is that God gives you up, gives you over to that. It's horrifying. How about this? Verse 25, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. There's a lot of people that don't like Paul because of this language that is so clear. And that's why we recognize all scriptures equally breathed out by God. What Paul writes is as inspired as the red words of Jesus. All right? And so if I have a problem with the text, the real problem is not the text. The problem is my fallen sensibilities. I've got to allow the text to sanctify my fallen sensibilities. And notice, he says, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. So let me close with this. It's bad news, but it's also good news. 1 Corinthians 6, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 on the same issue and other issues. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? All right? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral. Who are the sexually immoral? I would tell you all people who are outside of Christ are by nature, sexually immoral. They may express themselves uh, different in different ways, but all people, the seed of every sin is in every human heart. And the word there is porneia. All sexual expression outside the covenant of marriage. That includes pornography. That includes, obviously, lust, unrepentant lust. It includes adultery and, and, and rape and incest and all manner of sexual sin, nor idolaters, that is, those who love something more than they love God in Jesus Christ. That pretty much indicts us all, doesn't it? Those who are outside of Christ. Nor drunkards, I mean, nor adul adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. That's bad news. But here's the good news. And such were some of you. Such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. Hallelujah indeed. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. And how would that be? How would that be? And so this isn't just indicting homosexuals. This is indicting 
every person outside of Christ because all of us see ourselves in this list, okay? Idolaters, sexually immoral, revilers, just name a sin. And here's how it can be that we can be washed, we can be justified, we can be sanctified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one greater than Abraham came. All Abraham could do was intercede. But we have one who came to make atonement for sinners such as these. He came to die for the sexually immoral. And so on the cross, God's wrath for sexual morality was poured out on the Son. On the cross, God's wrath for idolatry was poured out on the Son. On the cross, God's wrath for rape was poured out on the Son, for adultery, for pornography, and for homosexuality. And God's wrath was satisfied as evidenced by the resurrection. But it does not benefit you unless you come to Christ. You have to come to him and you come on his terms, not yours. You come repentantly saying, I'm laying down my sin at the foot of the cross because I have a savior who died for my sin. As Adam and the musicians come forward, we recognize not everyone here can say that. But what Paul has made clear in this list is that all of us are indicted. I'm memorizing 1 Timothy 1 with our interns. And, 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 and Paul writes in 1 Timothy 1, he says that the, that the law was not laid down for the just. It was laid down uh, for the lawless and disobedient. He's describing us for the unholy and the profane for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for sexually immoral people and, and men who practice homosexuality, for, for even enslavers. He's even indicting there uh, those who bought and sold slaves. Paul didn't advocate slavery. For, for, for liars and revilers. The law is laid down for us, for those kinds of people. Why? To drive us to Jesus. And you can come to Christ tonight. You can repent of your sins and come to him and have your sins forgiven. All the sins you've ever committed and all the sins you are presently committed. Jesus paid for it at the cross if you'll receive him by faith. Won't you come tonight as we stand and as we sing? Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org slash contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.